Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. This episode is brought to you by my course, Rest Assured. If you've been struggling with falling asleep, or staying asleep, or just not waking up feeling well-rested, you've come to the right place. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia, or CBTI, is the gold standard intervention in the management of insomnia. Rest Assured is a digital course that walks you through CBTI, step-by-step, with everything you need to succeed. Each of the six weekly modules guides you through some important background information for the different techniques, explores the evidence-based techniques in detail, provides multiple examples of exercises so you can find the one that works for you, and reviews the work you've completed since the last module. And rest assured, it's just not another DIY left to your own devices, but rather, you get direct access to me, a board-certified sleep physician in twice-monthly office hours, where you can ask me face-to-face any questions you may have about the course material. So check out www.wellrestedmd.com slash RA to learn more. That's wellrestedmd.com slash RA. Or just head to the homepage and click on courses to learn more. Enjoy the episode. Hey there, friends and neighbors. You're listening to the Well Rested Podcast, episode number 66, Melatonin. I'm your host, Dr. Joshua Lennon. Melatonin is natural, therefore it must be safe and effective, so I should take it, right? In this week's episode, I'll break down the available evidence on the most widely used supplement for sleep, melatonin, including whether or not you are actually getting what you think you're getting, and even if you are, whether that makes any difference for your sleep, so you can decide for yourself if it's really worth getting in on the melatonin craze. Before we jump in with this week's content, I'd love to hear from you. At wellrestedmd.com, you'll find a new feature on the homepage and the contact page where you can leave me a voicemail, ask any burning questions you may have, or something you've been too embarrassed to ask, or haven't gotten a straight answer on before. Check out wellrestedmd.com to post your questions in a voicemail, and I'll be answering them in upcoming episodes. So thanks in advance. Melatonin is a key player in the management of the body's internal clock, the circadian rhythm. It plays an important role in relaying information about the world around you to the rest of your body, specifically, information about light. Melatonin helps to spread this information about light in your surroundings to all the cells in your body, since your liver or your muscles don't have any direct access to that kind of information. You may have heard of the rods and cones in the back of the eye that help transform the light information of our environment into signals the brain can translate into mental images. There's another type of light-sensitive cell in the eye that uses something with a similar name to melatonin. It's called melanopsin. It's a photopigment, a light-sensitive protein that helps translate light information into electrical information in the intrinsically photosensitive retinal ganglionic cells in the back of the eye. That mouthful means that these cells in the eye aren't involved in vision They don't help you see colors or sharper images, but they are important. That light information transformed by melanopsin travels through the nerves as an electrical brake signal, making a stop first in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the primary timekeeper in the brain, before ending its journey in the pineal gland, the gland in the brain where melatonin is made and stored. So light ends up behaving like your foot. Melanopsin and these specialized retinal cells in the eye function like the brake pedal, and the nerve wiring from the eye to the SCN in the pineal gland function like the brake line, and the pineal gland acts like the brake calipers, clamping down on melatonin. Because when there is light in the environment triggering this pathway, melanopsin ultimately is helping to put the brakes on to suppress the release of melatonin. When there's light, there's no melatonin released. In the absence of light, the foot is lifted off the pedal and the brake calipers let go, allowing the release of melatonin from the pineal gland into the circulation. A chemical signaler that's released into the bloodstream to act at faraway places in the body is called a hormone, and because of the requirement for light's absence, melatonin is sometimes called the hormone of darkness. 
So this hormone of darkness, set loose through the body once the light steps off the brake pedals in the eye, circulates through the body to tell the rest of your tissue this important message, to convey that the lights are out and it's time for sleep. Melatonin therefore counteracts process C, this circadian alertness signal I keep talking about, especially back in episode 60 on feeling tired but wired. In fact, one of the most effective ways to measure circadian rhythm is with something called DILMO, Dim Light Melatonin Onset, D-L-M-O, DILMO. The relatively rapid rise of melatonin in the blood once the environment shifts from brighter light to really dim levels of light. One of the main functions of melatonin as it's circulating through the body is to help synchronize all the body's peripheral clocks. That's right, all tissues keep their own time, a complicated feedback loop of genes and proteins that run on an approximately 24-hour schedule, but not precisely 24 hours, so they need to frequently reset the clocks. And that resetting, that synchronization, is coordinated by melatonin. If every cell in the body is a pocket watch, and the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain is the master clock of Big Ben, then melatonin is the sound of Big Ben's ringing bells that the whole population hears and then uses to synchronize their pocket watches. Normally, hormones are not available over the counter. In fact, in many countries around the world, melatonin is treated like any other hormone. It's regulated and prescription only. In the U.S., however, the process for FDA regulation is long, expensive, and cumbersome. Melatonin was initially extracted from cadavers before it was able to be synthesized from scratch. The synthesis of melatonin was so relatively cheap, no drug maker in their right mind would commit the hundreds of millions of dollars required to develop and test melatonin in an effort to get FDA approval to market and distribute a prescription-only version of melatonin. Not only that, it's hard to make a good case for it given the evidence of melatonin's performance, which we'll get to later in the episode. On a side note, there are two prescription-only melatonin agonists available, These are compounds structurally similar to melatonin with the same key that fits the lock of the melatonin receptor. The effects of either are not overly impressive and efforts to expand their indications have met with some resistance. Remelteon has global sales around $26 million a year and Tazimelteon sold over $140 million in a recent year. That's impressive, though until you see that Zequil has comparable sales and generic Zolpidem has more than double those sales in Europe alone. So without FDA regulation, we, the consumer, benefit from lower costs due to the marketplace crowding and a race to the bottom in pricing. We benefit from access, no longer having to go through the gatekeeper of a licensed medical provider to prescribe it. But we lose out on something critical, which is regulation. Regulation of claims is important. Marketers of substances not regulated by the FDA can essentially make any baseless and outrageous claim they want, as long as they use phrases like intended to support and helps to promote certain states or symptoms, as long as they avoid making any claims about specific disease diagnoses, not just their symptoms. And as always, include the fine print disclaimer with that asterisk. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Beyond regulating and reining in these claims made during the marketing of a product, FDA approval status also involves regulation of the product itself, ensuring the quality and safety of the product according to set standards. These quality standards minimize any variability in concentration of the active ingredient from one pill to the next, or one vial to the next, or one lot or batch of product compared to the next. Inspections and quality control testing help ensure that you know what you're getting, and predictably so, and from one generic manufacturer to another, the active ingredient is the same, even if factory A makes it in the form of white circular tablets and factory B makes it in the form of a blue capsule. FDA regulation ensures that the active ingredient, the approved compound itself, is the same, 
even if the coloring, fillers, coating, etc. may vary between manufacturers. Non-FDA regulated substances, on the other hand, operate in the Wild West, with no one looking over their shoulders to ensure that any given pill actually contains any of what's listed on the bottle. The Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act of 1994, the DSHEA, gave the FDA the authority to regulate supplements as food, but not as drugs or medicines. That means that the manufacturers are responsible for the safety of ingredients and appropriate labeling of supplements, but they need no permission from the FDA to sell or have any evidence for any of their claims. The FDA, instead, is tasked with the burden of proof for adulteration, misbranding, or risk of injury before any action like pulling product from the shelves can take place. Unlike every other part of the federal government, the FDA doesn't have the resources or the swiftness to perform such duties. Case in point, one study of hundreds of distributors for the top eight best-selling herbal products found that 81% violated the DSHEA rules against making specific health claims including 55% of supplement makers claiming that their products treated, prevented, diagnosed, or cured specific diseases, and another 52% failed to include that fine print clause that the claims haven't been reviewed by the FDA, with plenty of overlap between those two groups. Part of the DSHEA of 1994 did give the FDA authority to establish good manufacturing practices. These include requiring tests to ensure quality, confirm the absence of contaminants, verify accuracy of labeling, maintaining minimum standards for marketing and packaging, monitoring reporting any adverse events, and making records available of all of these for FDA inspection, just as you would expect for distributors of chicken wings or a box of crackers. A 2013 FDA report, however, found that 70% of supplement makers were in violation of these good manufacturing practices, to say nothing of what happens when these practices aren't followed. And there's a lot of overlap of the DSHEA of 1994 with the 2006 Dietary Supplement and Non-Prescription Drug Consumer Protection Act. But a 2012 report from the Department of Health and Human Services found that just under 80% of supplement makers failed to register as required by the law, or they provided false and incomplete information. In fact, the FDA maintains a tainted supplement list, which now contains nearly 800 different dietary supplements and compounds, with demonstrable contamination that could affect safety. Furthermore. Of all the Class 1 recalls ever instituted by the FDA, Class 1 is the highest degree of safety risk prompting a recall, the majority of these recalls are not prescription pharmaceuticals or medical devices, but rather dietary supplements. More than half. Now granted, the majority of the tens of thousands of emergency room visits and hospitalizations caused by contaminated supplements fall under the weight loss and energy categories rather than sleep. But it's not as though the sleep supplements, and melatonin specifically, are somehow immune from these purity issues. So there are two issues with melatonin I want to spend the rest of the podcast reviewing, purity and efficacy. First, should you have any faith that what you're taking is what you think you're taking? And second, assuming naively that the reported dose is pure and accurate, does taking exogenous melatonin actually work to improve sleep? First on the issue of purity is a 2017 study often cited by Matt Walker, a sleep scientist now at UC Berkeley and author of Why We Sleep, a book I highly recommend, by the way. The study was published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine, which is one of the most prestigious academic journals in the fields of sleep and sleep medicine. A team of plant scientists, not the stooges of Big Pharma, from the University of Guelph in Ontario, took 31 different kinds of over-the-counter melatonin, including capsules, tablets, dissolving sublingual tablets, chewable tablets, time-release tablets, slow-release tablets, soft gels, fast-dissolving strips, and a spray. They also checked multiple lots to assess any variation between bottles or boxes from the same brand and dose. 
They analyzed the actual ingredients, not by looking at the label, but by using ultra-performance liquid chromatography with electrochemical detection and mass spectrometry detection. Basically really fancy ways of teasing out exactly what each sample is made of. When they compared the actual concentration of melatonin in the samples to what was listed on the label, with ranges on the label as low as 1 mg all the way up to 10 mg, the actual concentration of melatonin in these supplements varied from 87% lower than listed on the label, all the way up to 478% higher than what was listed on the label. Granted, a couple samples were only a few percent off from what was listed on the label, which is great, but the vast majority were way off. 25% higher, 27% lower, 38% higher, 61% lower, and as much as 87% lower concentration melatonin than listed on the label, what you thought you paid for, and as much as 478% higher, that's nearly six times more melatonin than you thought you were getting, and unintentionally overdosing on a hormone can be quite problematic. When comparing one lot to the next from the same supplement manufacturer, these were identical product labels and packaging just produced at different times, the lot-to-lot variability was no more reassuring. Lots varied by 5%, 11%, 16%, 28%, 42%, 103%, and as much as 465% different concentration of melatonin between lots. What this means is that the chances of you actually consuming the amount of melatonin you think you're getting is extremely low. Chances are, in any one capsule or tablet or gummy of melatonin, you're getting vastly different amounts than what's on the label. And even if you think you had a decent experience with one brand's dose one time, the likelihood of replicating that experience with the next bottle from the next lot is significantly lower because of how atrocious the quality control issue is in this essentially unregulated market. Furthermore, these researchers from the University of Guelph also reported what else they found in these supposedly melatonin-only samples that the manufacturers just forgot to mention on the label, what are known as impurities or contaminants. One out of three samples of melatonin contained these hidden contaminants, 11 different compounds overall. These range from valerian root to gamma-aminobutyric acid. And fully 26% of samples were contaminated with 5-HTP, a precursor to serotonin. 5-HTP can cause problems like nausea and heartburn, which can make it hard to pin down the cause if you have no idea you're being doped unwillingly. If taking other serotonergic prescription drugs like antidepressants and some pain medicines, taking 5-HTP can also increase the risk for a condition called serotonin syndrome, which can be fatal if the serotonergic agents, including 5-HTP, are not stopped in time. This is why regulation is important. No matter what your opinion is of Big Pharma and their sleazy marketing tactics and obscene profits, What you cannot ignore is that they operate under a microscope from regulators. Quality, purity, safety, they have to be there. If 81% of big pharma drug makers violated the basic rule against lying about what your product does, there would be very few medicines available for sick people. If 70% of drug makers violated the very basic and uncontroversial good manufacturing practices, no prescriber in their right mind would write a script for medicine from a blatantly untrustworthy drug maker. And if the dose of the medicine delivered varied from one-seventh as high to nearly six times higher than what was prescribed, or the dose varied by 5.5-fold from one refill to the next, or a 30% chance of being contaminated with impurities that can interact in a potentially life-threatening manner, you can bet your bottom dollar that no medical provider who cares an inkling about their patient's safety and well-being would subject their patients to that kind of risk by prescribing it. And finally, as if all that weren't enough, I want to bring your attention to the findings of a 2013 meta-analysis, a study of studies on the effects of melatonin on sleep. Recall that melatonin is a hormone that helps to coordinate and synchronize the circadian rhythm of the various organ systems with the central timekeeper in the brain. Melatonin is a clock hormone, not a sleep hormone. 
So it should be no surprise that the bottom line after looking at all these randomized controlled trials trying to assess the impact of melatonin on treating difficulty sleeping is that melatonin didn't help. In fact, six out of eight studies found no improvement at all in the time it takes to fall asleep when using melatonin, and nine out of ten studies demonstrated no improvement in the amount of sleep someone can achieve after taking melatonin. But what about these three out of 18 studies that had some positive findings? First, three out of 18 are not good odds if you're going to gamble. And the three studies with positive findings were the three smallest studies in the meta-analysis. Meaning that if I only have 10 people in a study, chances are, by random chance alone, I'm going to get a result. The effect of random chance is disproportionately high in small sample sizes. The larger the sample size, the more people enrolled as subjects in a study, the harder it is for random chance alone to account for a significant outcome. So in small numbers, yes, it is possible to see some small benefit of melatonin on sleep. But when taken in the aggregate, the big picture, that noise washes out, and melatonin is no better or worse than placebo at improving sleep. So to summarize, the hormone of darkness melatonin is a clock hormone. When the lights go out, detected by a pathway from the retina in the back of the eye to the pineal gland in the brain, the break is released and melatonin is let out into the circulation to tell the rest of the tissue in your body that it's lights out time. This keeps all the cells synchronized to the master clock in the brain, a coordinated, body-wide circadian rhythm. But too many people fall prey to the naturalistic fallacy, to assume that because melatonin is natural, that therefore it is good and desirable. So taking supplements of melatonin must therefore also be good and desirable. But this thinking misses the mark on two important points. First, buying something calling itself melatonin by no means indicates that you're getting something that is melatonin. Chances are, you're getting a significantly different amount than you think you're getting, either much lower or dramatically higher than what's listed on the label. And consistency within any given brand is also entirely lacking. Lot-to-lot variability is also too high to stomach. Not only that, just under one-third of melatonin sold over the counter is contaminated with substances the supplement maker did not feel you had a right to know, with more than a quarter contaminated with a serotonin precursor that could mix with prescription serotonin drugs the wrong way and potentially be fatal. Second, even if you can find one of the minority of manufacturers who's not violating the FDA's good manufacturing practices, what are the chances you will actually benefit from taking melatonin for your sleep? Prescription-only melatonin agonists have limited practical uses and small effects even under those circumstances. And melatonin can be quite helpful when the circadian clock is out of order and needs some help getting reset and synchronized. But for the vast majority, a clock hormone will not help insomnia. And the evidence bears this out, demonstrating no improvement in the time it takes to fall asleep or improving sleep across the night. So save yourself the humiliation. Don't get duped by deceptive claims, by deceptive labeling of dose or concentration, by deceptive ingredient lists that fail to account for the significant impurities and contaminants. And don't get fooled into thinking that melatonin as a sleep aid is doing anything to aid your sleep. If you haven't already, go check out wellrestedmd.com slash day, where you can get a special download, a totally free cheat sheet. In this day of the life of the well-rested download, you'll find examples and timing of several morning and evening routines, the evidence-based best practices for wakeful days and restful nights. So head over to wellrestedmd.com slash day to see these best practices in action. Be sure to hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to get all the latest episodes. Leave a review. And head over to wellrestedmd.com for more information, including the option to sign up for email updates. And don't forget to drop me a voicemail with your questions about sleep. Thanks for listening.